You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was a unanimous decision at the Supreme Court in a case steeped in politics. The court overturned the fraud convictions of two defendants in the Bridgegate scandal that shook former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's administration. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. So, Brad, Elena Kagan wrote the majority opinion, and she said the evidence showed deception, corruption, and abuse of power. So why did the court overturn the convictions? So what's happened here is the existing federal statutes that the Justice Department has been trying to rely upon, such as wire fraud and federal bribery, never really envisioned being applied in a situation where there was no money at issue. So like what happened here, similar to what we had a couple of years ago with the McDonald case that came out of Virginia, was the particular corrupt actions, which everyone, even though all the justices agreed, were corrupt. They were brazenly political complete retaliation didn't fall within the scope of this type of federal statute. The wire fraud statute required more than just this fraudulent use of authority, but that it would be done for the purpose of obtaining money or property. And the reason that the justices overruled the convictions here was because despite what actually happened, despite the admission that this was retaliation, it was fraud, they didn't do it in order to obtain money themselves. They were just engaging in political retaliation. And these federal statutes don't contemplate serving as sort of a roving federal anti-corruption statute. That's not what they do. So is it because the government had a sort of tortured view of what government property consisted of? That was part of it. And so what the government tried to claim was that because in order to cover up their actions, the uh, steps taken by the two criminal defendants had been to utilize government resources to create a phony story about a travel study, to pay off a toll worker to close lanes, because they had used funds in that way and was implicating a federally funded program. The Port Authority, that was sufficient to meet the statute. But what the justices concluded was, because these two individuals weren't doing it to get money for themselves, that took it outside the scope of the wire fraud statute. So as you mentioned, this is not the first time the Supreme Court has reversed a case when there's a prosecution for public corruption. Is there something about these prosecutions that the court finds wanting? It's not so much wanting from the facts so much as that the existing legal uh, provisions that are being relied upon by DOJ the Supreme Court has concluded, doesn't reach this far. So there isn't, by you know, uh, in, in, in law, any kind of broad, overarching uh, anti-corruption statute that applies to the official acts of state officials. Uh, there are state laws that can apply to that, and there may have been an argument that this should have been a state criminal case as opposed to a federal one. But the federal government hasn't ever imposed such a law on state officials, and there'd be obvious questions you know, in terms of Article 10 of the Constitution, whether or not that would violate the separation of powers between the federal government and the state. If the federal government could impose a broad anti-corruption statute against state officials. So that's, I think, why they haven't done that in the past and probably why they won't even do that going forward. But it does speak to whether or not the existing statutes that have been tried to be used, such as these, you know, the bribery statutes, whether or not they need to be clarified or updated going forward, given how these state officials have been sort of exploiting these loopholes. Let's go back for a second to the McDonald case. Sort of a shocking decision to most people. Yeah, and in that one, so that was the, in that case, it was the federal bribery statute that was in play. And there was things of value of personal money received. 
So that element, that prong of the issue was resolved and, and the government could prove its case. But what, what they struggled with there and why the justices uh, overturned the conviction in that case was there was no actual official act by Governor McDonald that the, the simple actions of taking a meeting or recommending someone talk with the private uh, company wasn't sufficient to implicate the official act by a state official. And again, we're getting into the nitty gritty weeds of what does and does, does not qualify as official state action, what does and doesn't qualify as uh, a fraudulent effort to obtain personal uh, monies or property. But this is where the vagaries of the law have come down to and where we're still fleshing out, you know, at this point, and even with the Supreme Court cases, these two in the last five years of exactly how far state officials can, you know, push the boundaries and exercise their power. So finally, will this have a chilling effect on federal prosecutors? I think they'll be a little bit more gun shy in terms of how they approach some of these cases. I think there was certainly an effort to crack down on some of the corruption that they thought was not being properly addressed. I think that there were legitimate and you know, good, you know, good faith purposes behind both prosecutions. I mean, certainly what Governor McDonald did here in Virginia a few years back, and then what these two individuals did in New Jersey back in 2013 was disgusting. It was unethical. Um, and it was brazenly politically corrupt, but it raises a question about how much the federal government is allowed to venture into this from a criminal standpoint, given these are state government officials and not federal government officials. Okay, thanks, Brad. That's Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Coming up next on Bloomberg Law, a controversial Trump nominee to the second highest court in the land gets a confirmation hearing with social distancing. The Senate Judiciary Committee became one of the first congressional panels to embrace new procedures to work during the coronavirus pandemic. The committee heard testimony from President Trump's controversial pick for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Justin Walker. Joining me is Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. So was it a teleconference, Maddie, a video conference? How did it work? It was a little bit of both. So the Senate Judiciary Committee was one of the first committees uh, on the Hill to, to try uh, to adapt to the coronavirus pandemic. And the way they chose to do that was to use a larger hearing room than they typically do. So they had lawmakers who were there in person, spread out among two levels of desks. They had at least six feet of separation between them. And then they had a few lawmakers who were present via video conference. Uh, so they showed up on a video screen and then the nominee himself was there and would address their questions uh, on that on that video screen. So um, they're adjusting to the pandemic just like everyone else. Were there any uh hiccups, any problems? It was a little difficult to hear a few of the speakers. Um, when Senator Patrick Leahy came on, his voice was very booming. He sounded a bit like the Wizard of Oz. Um, and then later on, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, uh, she came on and, and we couldn't hear her audio for a second. But despite those, those couple of hiccups, uh, it went pretty smoothly. I, I think you know it, it kind of fits with the theme we've seen with a lot of these government institutions that are switching over to some kind of adapted version of their proceedings, like the Supreme Court, where despite a few minor hiccups, it seems to be working pretty well. The Democrats had an objection to even holding this hearing because they're holding this hearing before Judge Griffith, whom Walker is supposed to replace 
is even scheduled to step aside. That's in September. Why have this hearing now? That's correct. So Democrats were opposed to the idea of this hearing last week. They sent a letter to Senator Graham uh, when word of this hearing came out. Uh, they said that they should be focusing on issues within the Senate Judiciary Committee's jurisdiction that are related to the coronavirus pandemic rather than a nominee who won't be filling this seat until September when Judge Griffith steps down. But the, the Senate Judiciary Committee, McConnell has said that this is going to be a priority for the Senate and the Senate Judiciary Committee is moving along with that work. Um, Republicans are saying that, that Judges are a part of the essential work of the Senate. Um, Senator John Cornyn yesterday uh, reiterated that and said, you know, this is one of the things that the, the Senate should be doing during this time. So that was definitely a consistent uh, conversation throughout the hearing. In addition to questioning the nominee himself, we kind of had this side debate of whether or not they should be focusing on this versus, you know, other things that the committee could be doing. Now, Walker is a protege of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has been leading the push to fill the judiciary with conservatives. Tell us a little more about him. So Justin Walker, uh, he is currently a judge on the Western District of Kentucky. He's 37, which is fairly young for an appeals court nominee. He is a protege of Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell has really championed his nomination for the D.C. Circuit. Walker was first nominated to his trial court seat by Trump uh, and confirmed just six months ago. So this is a pretty quick elevation to the D.C. Circuit. There was a bit of controversy over his last nomination because the American Bar Association, which does its ratings for judicial nominees, rated him not qualified, uh, which is he was one of the handful of nominees uh, that Trump has had who have been rated not qualified. And that was that largely characterized Democrats' uh, concerns in the last hearing. A lot of their comments were about his qualifications and his background. This time around, however, the night before his hearing, the ABA gave him a well-qualified rating, which is their highest rating. So why did the ABA change its rating on him? He's only been a judge for six months. The ABA says they changed their rating because they were looking through a different lens for this. For this position. Um, yeah, I talked to a, a few people who follow this process and they said that the DC circuit, it, it has different types of cases than a trial court would. And all the circuit courts have different types of cases than trial court would. So that could be part of why they changed their, their decision here is that, you know, as a trial court judge, there are different, um, types of skills and responsibilities that you need to, um, have and, and attend to than you do as an appeals court judge. So those are the factors that could be contributing to, to why they ultimately changed the rating. Did anyone talk about the fact that he just became a district court judge not six months ago? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't lost on members of the committee. Um, McConnell even made reference to that when he gave remarks on the Senate floor yesterday during the hearing. Um, it is... It, somewhat of a quick elevation, but this has happened in, you know, in the past and in other administrations where someone is appointed to a lower court and is elevated to um, an appeals court. Is Walker leapfrogging over other candidates who are in line? Yeah. So that is something else that was brought up at the hearing yesterday. Uh, Walker was nominated amid the pandemic. Um, Trump had two nominees for the appeals court seats that he has left to fill. That's a seat on the Fifth Circuit and this seat on on the D.C. Circuit. 
The Fifth Circuit seat is actually vacant right now, and it has been for quite some time. It's considered a judicial emergency, which is a term given to seats that kind of put a, a lot more pressure on the remaining judges. They have a higher workload. Uh, so that seat is still vacant. Um, the nominee for that seat, Corey Wilson, was nominated before Walker. So he's leapfrogging another appeals court nominee. And then, of course, he is leapfrogging other district court picks uh, who are in the pipeline. There's about um, 44 nominees currently in the pipeline. Uh, some of those have yet to have a hearing. So there are a number of those nominees that, that could also have a hearing soon. So is there any explanation from the committee chair or from McConnell as to why they're not dealing with the vacant seat first? What is the urgency of this? There hasn't been very much uh, in terms of addressing why Walker's nomination was put first. But if we look at the numbers and and the the past history of the Judiciary Committee um, and Trump and, and Senator McConnell is that we see that they do prioritize appeals court nominees over other nominees. Um, there's been some, you know, data that shows that those nominees move quicker through the process than than other nominees. So, um, you know, it could that is a contributing factor that the D.C. Circuit is is known as the second highest court in the land. It's a very important court, and you know, I'm sure McConnell would like to get. His, uh, his pick into that seat as quickly as possible. Now, Democrats are concerned about Walker's writings and remarks on Obamacare. Tell us about their concerns. So Walker has made a few comments um, over the past few years about the ACA. The first one was in an article defending Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. He was a former Kavanaugh clerk uh, when Kavanaugh was on the D.C. Circuit. He also clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy. Uh, and in that article, he basically said that the Supreme Court's decision in NFIB versus Sebelius, which is the decision that upheld the individual mandate of the ACA, he said that that was indefensible. And that was something that Democrats took issue with um, kind of in the, the context of the pandemic. A few of them asked why they should advance a a judge who is seemingly opposed to this law uh, during a time of a pandemic. Uh, Another comment he made was at his investiture in March. Um, It was a bit of a joke uh, at the end of a uh, description of his relationship with his former boss, Anthony Kennedy. He he made a remark that uh, kind of poked fun at the ACA. Uh, and that particular decision again, and Democrats also took took issue with that. But, you know, he said that in the article that he wrote, um, he was really trying to do a legal analysis. And then he also said that, you know, it really was a joke and, and he does, you know, respect Kennedy and, and the, the court. And I believe that not only Mitch McConnell, but Justice Kavanaugh were, were at his investiture ceremonies. That's correct. Um, this was actually in March. So it was at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, McConnell and, and Kavanaugh were there. They were present, uh, when, you know, he was uh, formally added to the, the Western District of Kentucky, which, um, you know, raised some eyebrows among Democrats. Uh, but both of those were mentors of his. Um, so it's, it's not atypical to have mentors there, but, um, it definitely raised some eyes, uh, eyebrows in, in the opposition. What also raised some eyebrows was his recent ruling allowing Easter services to go forward in Kentucky despite the virus. 
And it was controversial not only because it seemed to solve an issue that really wasn't there, but also because of its overt religious tones. Did he talk about that? That's correct. That was another thing that was brought up a lot. It was interesting at the hearing. It was brought up by lawmakers on both sides of the the aisle. Republicans pointed to that ruling as evidence of his understanding of the law and his, uh, you know, how he would uphold the Constitution. Um, But Democrats pointed to it as evidence of potential partisanship, um, you know, said that it was it was far too off topic. Um, another thing that came up about that particular ruling was that um, it was made without contacting the uh, the mayor who had put those restrictions in place uh, himself. So um, some some Democrats who were questioning did bring that up as, as a point um, of, of disagreement. And Maddie, did anyone bring up recently the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, Sri Srinivasan, asked the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, to get another circuit to investigate allegations or a request by demand justice to look into whether Mitch McConnell influenced Judge Griffith to retire. So that's definitely in the background of all of this. That's that's kind of the context for all of this. There have been um, reports that Mitch McConnell is asking judges to retire amid this, and um, more liberal groups like Demand Justice are taking issue with that, saying that it's unethical for them to do so. Um, you know, that was something that definitely was uh, part of the context for for yesterday's hearing. Has that moved anywhere? That request to the chief? Um, not that I know of yet. The the last news that I heard was that it was uh, just going through the the process and and that uh, they had asked for that that review. So does it seem as if nothing is really going to stop Judge Walker's confirmation? Mitch McConnell has the votes as usual. You know, Walker went through last time. Uh, Despite his not qualified rating, uh, Walker was confirmed. And this time he has the well-qualified rating. And the Senate is still led by Republicans. They still have a majority. So it, it does appear that his, his nomination will, will still be going through, but um, that doesn't mean it's not going through without a fight. Has President Trump nominated other judges recently for positions? Yes. Yesterday, uh, there was another nomination from the White House for the Eastern District of Virginia, and that adds to you know the over 40 nominees that I mentioned that are in the pipeline. Um, that's for about 79 uh, vacancies right now, current and future vacancies, so You know, about half those vacancies have someone in the pipeline. They're just waiting for the Senate and the Judiciary Committee to act. Okay, thanks, Maddie. That's Madison Alder, Bloomberg Law Reporter. College students kicked off campus by the coronavirus have a new extracurricular activity, lawsuits. Undergraduates have sued more than 50 schools demanding refunds for partial tuition, room and board, and fees after the schools shut down. Joining me is Joe Brennan, a professor at Vermont Law School who's tracking the litigation. What types of lawsuits are the students filing? It seems that they're filing contract-based lawsuits seeking damages for both contract damages and something called restitution or unjust enrichment. If it's a contract action, do students sign anything or do colleges have postings somewhere on a website that says what tuition covers? It's going to vary based 
on the institution. Um, generally, schools or institutions will have something in the offer letter that they send out to students saying that they're accepting, accepting them into the program and oftentimes saying that they're bound by the terms of any academic or student regulations. To the extent that something's on the website, it runs into some difficulty whether that, that would actually become part of the terms of the contract. Something like advertising generally isn't the basis of the offer or included in the offer. So um, that's rebuttable. That could become part of the offer if it was very specific and, and related to, to the terms of the agreement. But most of the time, it would just be something in an offer letter, which generally doesn't lay out specifically what tuition dollars are allocated to. And what would an unjust enrichment claim depend on? Unjust enrichment requires three different things. It requires a loss on the part of the plaintiff. It requires a benefit on the part of the defendant. And it requires some connection or causation between the two of them. So that's a big difference between an unjust enrichment claim and a contract claim. In a contract claim, you're showing that you were hurt and you're entitled to money for compensation. In an unjust enrichment claim, you have to claim to show that not only were you damaged, but also the other party was at the same time benefited. And so that's um, the recovery that you get, the amount that they were unjustly benefited. So these colleges still have to pay their professors. They have some amount that they have to spend in transitioning to online courses. So... They, are they necessarily going to come out ahead here? Not necessarily. Um, there are some areas where you might be more likely to get recovery than others. Uh, for instance, many schools are refunding um, meal plans or room and board because they're not now having to go out and buy the food to serve to the students. So they are saving a bit from, from that. But schools are still teaching the courses. They're still paying their faculty to teach the courses, the students are still getting credit for it, and there may be additional costs that have been incurred to support the online transition. So, absolutely correct, there's not necessarily going to be a benefit to the law school or college or university, even if uh, there was a detriment that was suffered by the, the plaintiff. So how are colleges responding to these lawsuits? Are some of them say, we're going to fight this to the bitter end? Are others saying, well, we'll give you back this or that? I think it's early and I think it's varied. Um, Many schools have taken some steps to refund fees that are directly related to specific costs, such as room and board is a good example of that, or, or parking fees, or some that's directly related to a service that isn't being provided. It's still early and schools will have varied responses to this. I'm not aware of any that have issued refunds of tuition to this point. But again, this is all happening um, in in flux right now. If this went to trial, let's say, the, the students are still getting 
the credits toward their diploma. So they're getting that much. How would a court determine what the value of an online education is versus the value of an education on campus? Right, because that would be what the damages would be if it's an unjust enrichment claim or even a contract claim. Um, And so there's little precedent for this because what we're doing right now with this shift to online education wouldn't have been possible even um, a couple of years ago. Some case law is instructive in um, the case of Hurricane Katrina. There were some schools that in New Orleans were not able to proceed with the campus, but other schools stepped in and let them finish out the semester at a different institution in a different area. And there was at least one class action related to that, and the court did did dismiss the um, breach of contract and unjust enrichment claims because the students still did get the credit and graduate from the institution that they were enrolled in. Just for that semester, they got it from a different area. So it, it is a difficult situation to evaluate exactly if there was a lost benefit so the student would still be getting the same number of credits. So that would be students would have the burden as the plaintiff to establish those damages and would have to bring in specific ways in which the online education and the in-person education were appreciably different such that their learning was not the same value as they had paid. So lawyers are advertising on sites like collegerefund2020.com to sign up students because they want it to be a class action. So explain how that would work. Are plaintiffs' lawyers in a rush now to be the lead plaintiff in a class action? So with class actions, you, you're looking exactly for a lead plaintiff. You need a named plaintiff at the start who can bring the claim. And once you establish that that plaintiff has a prima facie case, that they have met the elements that a jury or a fact finder could find in their favor, then you look to see, are there lots of other people who are similarly situated to be in um, a position where it's efficient to have this trial all held together and it makes sense to do so? So, yes, I think that Typically, when an event happens that is related to a class action, you will find law firms looking for those um, those named plaintiffs who would be a strong representative for a putative class to be certified at a later point. So does this sound like it's a good case for a class action that a judge would certify these students as a class? I guess it depends how broad the class is that um, that the plaintiffs are seeking to to name here. If you're staying within one institution, that is eliminating some of the um, dissimilarness of the claims that would that would be brought by the various plaintiffs. Um, for certain areas, I think class action could be a more natural vehicle to use, such as room and board, fees, everybody would be similarly situated with that because they would have the same contractual agreement, they would be paying the same fees, and they would not be um, making any differences in that. 
for some other areas like tuition, perhaps the detriment that has been suffered by each student is varied. So there are going to be some more hurdles, I think, at the class, if it gets to the class certification stage to certify a class on those types of claims. So if this is not certified as a class, if these are not certified as class actions, will the plaintiff's lawyers go away because to represent students individually would cost so much, what would the benefit be to them? That's exactly right. One of the big benefits to class actions is it allows plaintiffs to bring relatively small claims that aren't enough that it would be worthwhile for one plaintiff to bring. It's expensive to bring litigation, and so if it's only a a couple of thousand dollars, you could easily spend more in litigation fees than you would recover. And in a situation like this, we would have certain upper limits on the amount that any individual student would recover. This isn't like a tort action where someone was negligent and you're going for medical expenses or pain and suffering. To my knowledge, nobody is alleging that anyone was negligent or did any wrongdoing here. Um, the incident was caused by a global pandemic. What they're arguing is contract damages. So the maximum amount you could get would be the amount you were benefited or the, the benefit you lost under that contract. So that would be about a quarter of the year. And even that, it wouldn't be full tuition because you are getting a some value of it by getting credits and finishing out that term, not having to take it again. So there may be difficulties for an individual plaintiff to bring a, um, a claim which could support an argument for, for, for class action. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Joe. That's Joe Brennan, a professor at Vermont Law School. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio.